Hi everyone. Just before we get stuck into this episode of A Moment of Change, we wanted to tell you about the wonderful work being done by Afghan Welcome, a coalition of charities and civil society groups working together with the UK Home Office to offer Afghan refugees the support they need to start a new life in the UK. There are many ways you can support Afghan Welcome as they deliver clothing, housing, employment and advice to Afghans in need. Members of the On Purpose London team are proud to be involved with the Crisis Appeal and you can check out afghanwelcome.org to learn more. Welcome to A Moment of Change, brought to you by On Purpose London. On Purpose is a non-profit organisation and a vibrant community of people that believe in putting purpose before profit as a way to create an economy that works for all. 2021 is a pivotal year in the fight against the climate crisis and a key moment of change will be the COP26 meeting in Glasgow. Across the series, we'll be talking with changemakers from different backgrounds about what COP26 means to them and the work they do. We'll be chatting with people from areas including fashion, food and the green economy, discussing the challenges of the next few years and what practical actions we can all take to make a difference. Welcome to part two of our episode on fashion changemakers. I'm Veronica. And I'm Chloe. And today we are talking to Sabina Rakimova. Sabina comes from the maker's perspective of fashion. Inspired by her grandmother's skills, she has had a varied career in the fashion industry, which she will share more about shortly. To give you a very brief overview, Sabina graduated from Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design before launching her own eponymous label. She worked for the leading Parisian fashion house Christian Dior and London brand Mary Catranzou. Sabina has an innovative take on selling strategies and direct communication with her customers. As a double immigrant woman, she is incredibly passionate about inclusivity, equal opportunities and being an opinion leader for the future generation of creatives. Sabina also works as a public speaker, spreading the word about both fash tech and sustainable fashion, as well as a consultant with a focus on fashion startups and education. Since 2018, she has been a lecturer at the University of Arts London, teaching on the MA Fashion Entrepreneurship and Innovation course. In 2019, Sabina was named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 in DAC. So, without further ado, let's jump in. Okay, so welcome to our podcast, Sabina. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you here with us. I've been in and out of your shop in Hackneywick a few times and we've had the odd conversation about sustainable fashion and what it means to you but we've never had really the opportunity to dive into this into great detail. So why did you decide to start your own fashion brand and what is it about sustainable fashion that drives you? So yeah that's a very good opening question. Basically it was my grandmother who taught me handcraft. I do not have anyone in my family who worked in the fashion industry or the creative industry in general but I was always fascinated with handcraft, that you can create something, you can take two-dimensional things and make something three-dimensional out of it. was always fascinated uh, with people who are extremely good at handcraft. They could sew and knit and crochet. And it was always my aim to learn everything about that. But I didn't know that you can actually have a job um, that is connected to that. I didn't know that fashion is an industry. I didn't know what business means. Obviously, none of that uh, had anything to do with me. So growing up, uh, it was definitely about handcraft, that approach. And then later on, I realized, oh, there are people who are fashion designers. There are people who actually work in this industry. So I decided it might be uh, something for me. 
So what did you do? How did you get into it? I tried to explore it. I had um, a bunch of jobs and internships in the fashion industry. The very first one at the age of 14, uh, working at an archive of a fast fashion company back in Austria. So I'm originally from the Soviet Union. I was born in Central Asia, but I grew up in Austria and Vienna. So that's why um, I had my first internships there in Vienna. And I was just fascinated with how fashion companies operate. All of a sudden, I realized there's so many people involved. There's so many tasks that had to be done uh, on a day-to-day basis. And somehow I realized that the product is not really at the center of the attention. And when it is, then it's all about the marketing aspect, but not about the maker. Mm, Interesting. I've never really thought about it from that perspective. How did it make you feel? What did you go on to do next? It did upset me. I did go on to have another job in retail, decided then to study fashion design, was not accepted at the university I applied for in Vienna went on to study Slavonic languages, did work for more designers as a fashion design assistant, ended up doing um, fashion, decoration, windows, delivery, logistics, anything you can imagine in fashion, basically, I've probably done, and applied at Central St. Martins to, as a kind of last resort, which was definitely aiming a bit too high and chasing that dream. And somehow it worked out. And that's why I moved to London. So this was kind of my journey to fashion, but not, not necessarily sustainable fashion. Obviously, sustainability was at its core, right? Because I come from that maker approach. And I always wanted to put the focus on the product and the maker behind it, seeing the lack of it in the industry. But I think it, was, it wasn't until I started my own brand after graduation, after gaining more experience working for bigger fashion houses and for startups as well, When I started my own business, I realized how much people were all about, tell me what the inspiration of your product is. Tell me like what your background is. But they asked less about the materials. They asked less about the production. They asked less about the life cycle and definitely not about the end of life of a garment. So it was really interesting for me to see that there is no demand for it. And we're talking about six years ago. And now fast forward six years us doing it for quite a while, going through ups and downs, through wholesale models and direct-to-consumer changes, through fashion weeks and leaving all of that behind as well. It's exciting to see that the industry changed and sustainability becomes um, a trend and hopefully one that is here to stay. But it's also concerning that it's not happening fast enough. And I know we will talk about it in a bit as well. But looking at the climate reports and everything around it, yeah, it is a bit worrying where we're going uh, with sustainable fashion. So yeah, that's a little summary of the journey so far. So you mentioned really the sustainability angle kicked in when you started your own business. Um, I wonder if you could just explain a little bit more about that and what was really the tipping point for you in in noticing that, that the sustainability was it was an important angle. I guess it was my idealistic approach because when you start a business, you want to make it right because the better you do it in the beginning, the less problems you have (laughs) down the road. And I knew from working for other brands, I knew that once you have supply chains that are put in place, it's very difficult to change them and adjust them. So it's better to actually invest properly into setting them up and making them sustainable from day one. Having said that, When I started to reach out to suppliers and started to plan my first collections, I realized that as a small brand with no name, with 
not ever having working with anyone who can confirm that you will pay the bills and you'll be around in another year. It was really difficult to get access to the most sustainable materials. It was difficult to get factories and production slots with them if you're not ordering a certain amount of clothes. So I had to put down a framework for myself, understanding what sustainability can mean for us as a one woman small business and how we can work from that and improve it. Mm, yeah, the challenges of being a small business. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about the framework. How did it work in the beginning? So in the beginning, I worked a lot with dead stock materials because new materials that were sustainable were just not available to me, which is, of course, not ideal because you can't uh, trace them back to their origin. You can't know how they were made and where they're exactly coming from. And then we know that there are some people claiming it's dead stock uh, when it's not. Dead stock means that something uh, was maybe ordered by another designer but never uh, picked up or bought, or there was an overproduction of a material and usually the resources were spent, but it goes directly to landfill without it being made into something. So that's what dead stock is. So I worked a lot with these type of materials. Then with production, a lot of things I would just do myself from like pattern cutting to sewing. And of course, it's not like an ideal practice and not as how I imagined a green sustainable business to be. But it's important to always do the best you can do as a small business. And for corporations and the bigger brands, different rules apply because then you start to understand that they actually could do better, that they have access to all of the, all of these things and there are no excuses. So for me, it was this journey going from strength to strength, from like growth to growth, seeing what is available out there and just trying to step on, stay like on top of the game and being informed. So once you think you know everything about your industry, once you think you know everything about sustainable fashion, that's when you lose because you don't, you will always have to stay informed, to learn more things, to be up to date with innovation coming through, with the research coming through. If we're talking about materials or sustainable practices or business concepts, you need to be on top of the game uh, in order to be sustainable these days. So you're not terribly pleased with the way that fashion is going at the moment and there's still definitely work to do. And some of the reports you mentioned specifically around the UN and I guess the reports that we've seen coming out around COP26 talk a lot about the greenhouse gas emissions as well as the fashion industry. With its current trajectory and projection, it's estimated that it will go over the 1.5 degree target by 50% um, by 2030, which is quite a, a worrying and, and scary thought, really. So I guess a couple of questions for you on that. Specifically, let's start with your own business. How much do you focus on the environmental impact as a business and how do you think about it? How do you measure it? What do you look at in terms of greenhouse gases and, and also beyond that? Yeah, there are a couple of things because when we talk about sustainability, I think when people started to talk about sustainability, it was a lot about the product, about the materials, and maybe sometimes about the ethical aspect, meaning how a product was made. But we're past that point, you know, we're past the point where we can say every little step counts, <laughs> you know, especially for brands and companies. So for us, it's important to have materials that are as um, sustainable as possible. So if we work with new materials, it would be certified organic cotton or it would be tensile. Um, we still work with dead stock materials as well that I mentioned, but it would be with trusted collaborators where we know exactly where this dead stock is coming from and that we can trust them when it comes to what it's actually made of. 
then ethical production is a no-brainer for me as I come from that background of a maker and I understand how much value it has to have these skills. And I also understand how long it takes to do things. So we produce everything locally, which then brings us to the point that that not only allows us to have full control over the product and see how things are made and pay fair wages, but that also helps us to reduce our carbon footprint for the journeys of our items. Because if we produce something that is like 10 minutes away from our studio and then things can be biked over and then we can ship it from here to a customer, obviously that reduces the journey with a carbon footprint, which is fantastic. We also work with a production site in Portugal. Uh, that's for our knitwear. There we would make sure that the yarn is dyed at the same place, the knitwear is done at the same place, the packaging is all done at the same place before it then comes to us the distributor of it and then to the customer absolutely and as you said ethical production is really a no-brainer so minimizing the production sites and ensuring that a substantial part of the production process is completed locally seems to be not only a very sensible but also efficient way of minimizing your carbon uh, footprint talk to us a little bit about the end of the production cycle and packaging for example i think when people talk about packaging in the fashion industry, they're always thinking about the last part of from the brand coming to the customer. But there is a massive thing of from the factories coming to the brands. And usually things are packed one by one by one in plastic. Again, because of local production and short journeys, we don't need it to be packed that way because it's not going to sit anywhere for ages and you know getting wet by different weather conditions and so on. So we're reducing the packaging in that as well. And a very important aspect is um, not to go for overproduction. A lot of fashion businesses are built in a way that the more they produce, the better their margins, the better their profits. And they would overproduce on purpose, knowing that some of it go to landfill because this will bring them more money. And that's definitely something that we don't do. We cater to demand. So we only have a handful of pieces that are available to buy straight away because we know that these items will sell and we have enough research done and enough data on it, knowing that this is something our customer likes. Um, And then with a lot of other things, there would be batch drops or pre-orders or made-to-orders. So kind of experimenting with as many things as possible. And we do participate in the circular economy as well, offering renting or upcycling, repairing services, alterations in our studio and so on. Great. On the the end of life processes that you were just mentioning there and experimenting with different business models, have you looked into the difference in impact you can have by increasing utilization versus letting a product uh, go to waste? Yes, we did. And I think the kind of answer would be to look at it from a design perspective, starting from design, because a lot of times we talk about impact as soon as a garment is made, and then we're thinking what to do with it. So either I sell it and then it's not my problem, or I try to keep it in the life cycle. But the actual answer would be to try and make it as sustainable as possible uh, when you're producing it. For example, there are some certain ways of designing so a garment can be 
timeless and can be worn by more than one generation and can be durable and so on. But what about things like materials? If we produce something in 100% of the same materials and we're speaking about the actual uh, fabric, but also the threads, the labels and so on. If everything has the same material, then it's easier to upcycle and recycle at the end of life. And it's not possible if you start mixing different fibers. In terms of numbers, I won't be able to tell you exact numbers because it really depends on the garment. Knitwear is very different from wovens. It's very different from a accessories and so on but yes this is definitely something we're looking into and just asking ourselves the question if new items are needed or how many more new items we need or is there a way of having other revenue streams as a fashion business to move forward and to align with the goals that we set ourselves in terms of managing your own material waste how do you how do you manage that within your production Mm-hmm. Is there any waste or do you try and <laughs> minimize as much as possible? And unfortunately, there's always waste. It's actually very interesting because we had this conversation in the team as well being, oh, should we say zero waste? We mm. say almost zero waste because you can't be fully zero waste. Again, the local production aspect helps us a lot because we are in touch with the uh, factories that we're working with. So we can tell them, please do not throw away any of the waste. We want you to send everything back to our studio because we host workshops and we can use it for the work shops we do some of the accessories using our own offcuts and we kind of try to repurpose it as much as we can in our studio and keep the waste but again as i said there always will be some waste knitwear is easier in knitwear you in general have less waste because it's not you cutting from a piece of fabric you actually just knit the pieces in the actual shape and then you put them together. So that's easier. But it's just things like your studio life as well, working in an office, making sure to reduce waste here as well. As a small company, it's easier to overlook that and it's easier to recycle and it's easier to have control over your own waste. But I know from working for bigger companies that it can be quite challenging and you need really good logistics in place in order to make it happen, especially when it comes to waste that happens during your production. Mm. From your opinion, what do you think are the most important steps for the the wider and, and I guess the big players in the fashion industry to take in terms of cutting their carbon emissions and, and going neutral and beyond? <laughs> yeah, I like that question. It's a very interesting one. There are so many discussions around it happening. There are quite a few companies and nonprofits at the moment that are helping fashion businesses to track their carbon footprint, to offset it. But the question is always, can we offset our way out of the climate crisis? And I feel that sometimes these solutions always tend to make companies a bit lazier. That sounds maybe harsh, but it's a quick fix that so we can say, oh, we do this and that. And you mentioned that before, by 2050, by 2035, things that are kind of far in the future will reach that goal, but it's not possible to do it at the moment. So the current efforts are definitely not enough. And again, looking at the UN Climate Change Report, we see that the supply chain emissions are definitely the biggest problem because, first of all, it's an area that is quite difficult to tackle for brands because it's complicated. Supply chains in fashion are really complicated. And it's um, an area that is responsible for the vast majority of fashion's carbon footprint. I have to say, I think that the reports that came through recently did open a lot of their eyes. And even if companies are not willing to do it for the climate, for the next generation, they need to understand that at some point it will actually affect their businesses financially. Because we know that climate change is responsible for the extreme weather conditions that we have. And if this will continue, their supply chains will be disrupted. At some point, they won't be able to produce in a certain way 
because their areas of where they're producing and, and especially the countries that will be affected mostly where they're producing, there will be flooded, there will be fires, there will be extreme weather conditions that will disrupt their supply chain. Yes, and we don't have to wait long. We can already see the impacts of climate change on supply chains. And as you said, current efforts such as carbon offsetting are not enough and don't seem to address the heart of the problem. So what will it take for the fashion industry to drastically cut its carbon emissions and move on a more sustainable path? It will just need a more radical approach. We touched upon that before. Every little step counts. That's just not good enough. And for me personally, my concern is they were running out of time. And looking at all these reports that came through recently, looking at the IPCC report, I'm just very worried that we're running out of time and it won't be enough time, but just offsetting carbon footprints day in, day out and not finding actual solutions. Actual solutions would be shifting business concepts and business models, looking at revenue streams, looking at the amount of production every company does. And with it, maybe bringing policies that would cap these production amounts, saying that you're not allowed to do more than this and that per year, which would be quite radical, of course. But it's really needed because we are in a mess at the moment. We can't invest more into linear approaches. We need to look into circular approach overall. And yes, there are lots of companies setting their goals, participating in the conversation around sustainability. But a lot of time, it feels like it's uh, about selling the impression of sustainability and using it for marketing purposes rather than meaning it. Okay, great. I think that's probably a very good segue into talking about the kind of financial system and and funding models and different business models as well. Um, And how you as a business have been experimenting with those different kind of business models. Um, Love to just hear more about that and, and whether there's been challenges in doing so, what you've noticed, how the uptake has been from a consumer lens as well. Yes, fashion changed a lot. When we started off six years ago, the kind of way forward was wholesale, meaning that you would try to sell your collection to buyers and then place them at certain boutiques and stores. They take a massive commission, or maybe if you're lucky, they buy the product from you and try to sell it. Or if you're very unlucky, it's a sell or return, which means they take it without giving you a penny. And if they don't uh, manage to sell it, you just get the stock back and it's old stock and You either burn it, like a lot of uh, fashion brands unfortunately do, or you try to sell it for a few pennies to at least get your production cost back. That changed, and the direct-to-consumer approach is definitely the more popular one, and that's also a shift that we have done. So I think for the financial system, that's a very important thing that helped us, A, be more transparent with our uh, customers, and B, be more sustainable as well. Because if I can tell people how much something costs, what my personal margin and markup is, and for how much I'm selling it to them, it's a very important educational aspect that we have an understanding sustainable fashion and understanding the value of sustainable fashion. A wholesale model is not sustainable in itself because the markups are crazy and I'm just making a small amount of money while having low margins anyway. And this means I can compete even less with the bigger players who are all about overproduction and low margins. So that's kind of like one of the important things. Um, Another thing that I mentioned before is not having uh, stock pre-produced, but instead waiting for the demand or catering to demand. So you would have batch drops telling customers in advance that something will launch in that 
amount or that many pieces and you can subscribe to your newsletter and then get uh, the notification and buy or you know that this will be a limited edition because there's only that much fabric available and you then cater to the sizes that are needed or you can um, have pre-ordering systems where you launch a collection but then people have two weeks to pre-order and then you start making it so there's definitely a shift of people being willing to wait for a garment longer but then they also appreciate it more and that helps companies to finance uh, their uh kind of like business plans and everything to finance their businesses in a better more sustainable way and not burning out because that's what we've seen a lot with smaller businesses you just can't compete with the bigger ones and you won't be able but instead of trying to copy their business concepts you just have to come up with your own and the financial aspect is a big one so how can you have uh, not enough money or just a little bit money but still start a business still kick in still offering something um, and then in a best case scenario use your own cash flow to then fund the next uh, thing you're doing great i really like the point you made about creating your own business models rather than copying the existing ones because that's how big bold innovative ideas are born like the pre-ordering system you talked about and catering to demand rather than mass producing garments but i wondered in your opinion what would these changes or these ideas mean for your ability as a business to grow and scale that's a fantastic question and growth has actually a lot to do with it and the expectation of growth and the definition of success and when is a company or a fashion brand successful and how many more people do you need to hire every year or how much more do you have to grow how much bigger has your space to be year in year out it's, it has a lot to do with all of these things and i think my own perception of it changed a lot when i entered the space of uh, sustainable fashion it was definitely my goal to have a certain size in five years to do certain projects or have certain people on board um, but i kind of understood that as i mentioned before it's impossible to fake existing business concepts that only worked because of overproduction, because of endless growth, because of not being profitable as a business as well. And it always led to the founders or those who would run it burn out at some point. Because if you look at the fashion industry, there are not that many people that stick around for so long working in a certain area, um, especially not kind of in leadership or as a founder. And I didn't want that because... I just had to remember why did I end up in this place in the first place? Because I, ha I love handcraft, because I'm all about the makers. And can I not define success in my own way? So yes, for me, it meant not growing as fast as I expected it myself. It meant redefining what success means to me. It meant redefining of how many people I want in my team, how uh, big I want the company to be or, or what the plan is. And it was rewarded in the end because especially since the pandemic and everything that happened, people see a lot of value in the smaller players, in those who can pivot and be more flexible, in those who have less hierarchies and can be more brave in trying out new concepts and having case studies because they have just less to lose on one side, right? So there was definitely a benefit of that. Um, and I think in general, the fashion industry has to rethink of how growth is seen. And probably not only the fashion industry, because when you look at startups, there is a certain expectation um, that success is tied to a certain growth. And I think we need to rethink that because there will be lots of businesses. They won't be massive, but they will have a big impact on the industries overall because they are more flexible and can pivot easier, try out new ideas, try uh, business concepts that are 
a bit more risky. And then bigger players will profit from it as well because they can see a case study on a smaller uh, on a smaller scale and implement that in their companies as well. Yeah, it's interesting. We often think about these big brands and these fashion conglomerates as the ones driving the change. But as you said, perhaps the smaller businesses have a lot more influence and power that we perhaps give them credit to, not only on us as consumers, but also on these big players to rethink and change their own business models. And there's lots of us. I mean, one thing is if you just look at small businesses on their own, just one by one. But if you look at us together as a community, and that is how sustainable fashion works, there is uh, quite a few companies that actually work together, collaborate, do things. That's why it is crucial that we collaborate uh, together and we also exchange our knowledge and try to work together because this will make a change on a bigger scale. And it used to be uh, weak and Maybe at some point, like embarrassing to say, oh, I'm a small business owner or yes, I run this small little business, you know, just a few people know. But that changed a lot. People are really proud of their small businesses, of their family run businesses, of their local businesses. I do think that there's a shift in that perception as well of how customers see. And during the pandemic, we saw that a lot, how people wanted to support their local businesses, the small businesses in the area, trying to make sure that these businesses don't close down because they saw how much value is coming from that. And again, uh, looking at the innovation space, yes, the bigger players have all the budget, but look at what small businesses are capable of with their small teams and their small budgets. It's actually impressive. So it is definitely kind of a good way to show the bigger players that things are possible and you can't always keep using the excuses of, oh, no, we can't because it's just too difficult. And speaking of big players, I'm curious to know if you would consider working with and collaborating with major fashion brands that are not currently sustainable. I also work as a consultant and I think as a consultant, I definitely worked with people who would be considered the bad guys. Uh, And I think it's important to work with them as well, because if I can bring some expertise or uh, some movement into what's happening there, then it is important and I should do so. And in terms of a brand, um, probably would have to define first where bad starts and good ends. So there's definitely kind of the scala of, let's see, uh, where do we position uh, who? Um, Probably we did not work with people yet who are considered the bad guys in our industry. But that's also because I have the privilege to say no to them. I'm not relying on the money from them and I'm not relying on these collaborations. And that's definitely a privilege to be able to say as a company that we don't have to do that. So I'm not judging anyone who does. And it's definitely just a personal opinion, my very personal one, that I would say no um, if they don't align with uh, my morals. Uh, But that's because I have the privilege to do so. I guess we've talked about collaborating with the the bigger players, but you've also mentioned collaborating with other small business owners. Um, it sounds like you've kind of formed a collective in some way or, or like a small community. I wanted to explore that a little bit more. What does that collaboration look like and, and what do you feel like as a collective you can do more of? Yeah, community is super important. And uh, I guess it's a word just like sustainability. We use it all the time. It's a buzzword. What does it even mean? Micro communities, communities. 
together and everyone for everything. Uh, but it actually helps a lot to be able to exchange knowledge. Uh, being a founder is a very lonely journey, especially when you're working in a field that is uh, still developing, that is misunderstood to a certain extent, that is still in uh, kind of like a development stage. And as you said, for the sustainable business sector, I do feel that we are a handful of businesses and founders. We all know each other. We would get together. Uh, we have events where we would uh, meet and, and work together on projects. Uh, we collaborate as much as we can. And I'm part of the Trampery as well. So our studio space is part of the Trampery that helps uh, small businesses and independent businesses with um, their uh, locations and their studios. And we are seven businesses on one road together, which again helps us to exchange, just kind of like go over, ask each other questions um, and be there for each other. And the, that community aspect is important. And I mentioned that before when Veronica asked about uh, being a small business and having a big impact. That is what I meant in us being, uh, you know, m maybe not that strong by ourselves, but having a bigger impact if we put our forces together. Of course, customers play a very crucial role in it as well. So they would be the extended community of that. And speaking of customers, we've talked a lot about what companies could do to reduce their footprint, to change their business models, to collaborate, innovate, etc. But another big piece of the puzzle is how do we change our own consumerist behavior, our relationship with fashion altogether and our purchasing habits? There is no quick fix to it. It's a journey. And we could see in the past six years, and I'm speaking of the six years because I've been an active part of the sustainable fashion industry for the past six years. So I can tell you from my own experience, there is definitely more understanding from the customer perspective. They ask more questions. They uh, want to know more about products. They want proper answers. And they can even spot greenwashing these days, which is fantastic. But it's still a journey. The responsibility is definitely on the side of um, businesses and brands because that's that's like a big discussion of oh yeah but if there's demand then what can businesses do of course they have to give you this very cheap items fast fashion and so on that's not true they don't have to so the responsibility is definitely on the business side but as a customer there are a lot of things you can do and here it's important to say that has a lot to do with privilege as well no one expects those people who don't have the resources don't have the time just have a lifestyle or like uh, are at a stage of their life we just can't they just can't participate in this whole conversation around sustainability they don't have to but there are plenty of people who could afford to do so who have the privilege to do so and it's definitely the job of these people to interact and see what they can do to learn more about sustainability and also to invest more into sustainable pieces something i should not say as someone who uh makes clothes but the most sustainable approach is not to buy anything new you know, you don't need it, you will be fine with everything you own. Uh, but we also understand that people want to know more, that um, our brains work in a way that we want new things. And we are here to give you the sustainable, beautiful new things. And we want you to be on the journey with us. So the educational approach is super crucial and important. And that's why we have a podcast touching upon all these topics um, in sustainable fashion, getting um, industry experts on board and sharing the platform with them. We have webinars that we host. Our whole Instagram is built in a way that there is a lot of information on top of product. So it's not only, oh, here's a sustainable product. You need to trust me. It's sustainable. Please buy it. But it's uh, kind of like, look, this is a product. You can make it in that way, but we make it in that way. What do you think about it? They give us feedback. Then we tell them something. Then they give us more feedback. And that's a win-win situation on both sides. 
So I think customers will continue to to change and and be uh, more aware of what's happening, but it's definitely on the brand side as well to have this educational content available. And that's why we do that as well. There are many sustainable products in the marketplace already, but they definitely have a higher price tag than their non-sustainable counterparts. So in your view, what is one way in which we can bring these sustainable green products to the mainstream and make them more affordable for all? It's a very good question. Sustainability is definitely exclusive, but not only because of the price. I think most of, mostly because of the sizing. So that's a huge issue that sustainability mm. has. We see a lot of sustainable brands not catering uh, to certain sizes and just not being size inclusive. So that's a big problem. And it's definitely an exclusive space on its own. And we need to make it more diverse and more inclusive for people. But talking about prices, I think um, it's, again, the definition of affordability, right? We were detached from the process of making so much that we think a fair price for a T-shirt is five pounds. So when you're talking about making sustainable fashion affordable, are we talking about making T-shirts available for five pounds that are sustainable? That won't be possible because uh, just the making of a T-shirt and everything that goes into it won't be possible to meet that price target. And the, the reason we have these prices is because someone's being exploited on the other side and not paid fairly. And we have uh, bad materials on top of that and we harm the planet. So it's basically harming the planet, harming the people. But one side of the planet can then buy the T-shirt for five pounds. Um, of course, there's also a bunch of non-sustainable fashion that is too expensive out there <laughs> that's another category so i think affordability um is kind of a multi-layer topic that is maybe seen only from one perspective if affordability means five pounds we won't be able to reach that five pounds for a t-shirt is just not possible can we make sustainable fashion a bit less expensive than it is now yes especially if there's growing demand especially if there's more businesses doing sustainable fashion that's possible but Overall, we also need to think about the um, amount we're buying. So do we really need 10 new items every month? Or is it better than to save and just buy one, spending the same money, but only on one item rather than 10 pieces? But then kind of like still value the making process, the material and owning something for a longer time. So that's a bit of a complex thing. And I know that people... It's a bit of an unpopular opinion. People get mad because they see it from that side. Oh, but I can't participate because I can't afford it. I'm a student or I don't have that much income, which is, again, totally understandable. And that's the privileges I spoke about before in the previous question we discussed. Some people have more privileges and they can participate in it. Some people don't have the privilege to participate in that and no one's blaming them that they don't do so. But we also need to talk about the pricing properly and understand that affordability needs to be defined first. And affordability does not mean to have t-shirts that cost five pounds. Fab. And I guess you, you touched upon this in your answer around that wider supply chain and us being able to drive our costs down in the West and not thinking so much about the supply chains in the East. And obviously, I know from your business standpoint, you've said you produce locally. That's a huge part of what you do as a business. But for those large fashion companies that already have their supply chains set up in the East, for those economies that rely heavily on on fashion, you know, Bangladesh, um, their GDP is 80% from the fashion industry. What do you think can be done to transition those communities? 
How might we go about doing that? Yeah, so here we're probably talking more about the ethical approach then. Producing locally does not always have to mean that it's ethical. Just wanted to throw that in as well, because we did talk a lot about uh, local production. And I feel whenever I'm this ambassador for local production, everyone's like, local production is amazing and non-local production is shit, which is not true. Um, there is There are factories actually in Bangladesh that are incredible and equipped so well and have um, amazing machines and are so sustainable and, and are honestly awesome to work with and I have colleagues who work with the factories there and they're doing an amazing job and they're really really skilled workers as well um, and I've seen factories in the UK that uh, are horrible and people treat the workers really badly and don't pay them properly so we definitely can't say that local is good and non-local is bad and then one side is exploiting the other. The problem that we have here is that a lot of people uh, go to other countries for production not for the skill necessarily but because it's cheaper and because they can fool people there and they're just less worth for them and it's just it's just horrible there's a kind of lack of respect and what makes me really angry is that people don't pay garment workers they don't pay them fairly and during the pandemic they didn't pay them at all which was absolutely shocking to see it just shows how horrible the hierarchies are in the fashion industry that there's still this understanding of whoever is on the design team, whoever is at the top of the business, they are the important ones. These people still didn't understand that there won't be a product if there won't be people who are making these products. They're a crucial part and they need to be seen as equals. It needs to be a collaboration rather than uh, exploitation of what happens at the moment. So a quick fix would be to pay everyone, to pay everyone properly, to pay everyone fair, uh, not to cancel uh, contracts, uh, to take the items that you've actually pre-ordered because we know that these people have the money. I'm not going to say any names, but we've seen it, that there were companies who paid high bonuses to their managers but didn't pay their garment workers how is that possible honestly this this is like the easiest quick fix for the fashion industry pay your garment workers hmm. how can we make the fashion industry more accountable how can we compel or even force companies to do the right thing like paying their workers fairly course they will continue with their practices because they have nothing to lose and they can always use greenwashing to uh, polish their uh, image for the customers you know it did work in the past it will be more difficult as i said before the customer is more aware and customers understand when they're being bullshitted it's like definitely improving but for now if they can get away with it they will always opt for the cheapest option, you know, the one that includes less resources in terms of like time and, and team that needs to go into it. And something that I mentioned before is this kind of selling the impression of sustainability, but then doing the complete opposite behind the scenes. But behind the scenes is not that behind anymore, right? Because we can look into it. And again, the pandemic showed that uh, people are aware and people are asking questions. And there were actually a lot of movements trying to force these companies to pay their garment workers, which is amazing to see. So that is changing and they will have to come up with solutions. Uh, but yes, we do need the government on our side as well. Great. I'm just conscious of time and we should probably try and wrap up. I feel like we've managed to cover a lot. Thank you so much. One closing question from us. Um, what is the one action that we can all take today for our own wardrobes that will make a difference? I thought about it for so long and I was like, what should I recommend? Just one thing. How can I only pick one thing? And I think I did say during the podcast recording, but maybe one thing is don't buy anything new for a little while, 
for a little emotional detox of understanding what it is that you want. And once you get back to it, buy from sustainable small businesses, look around in your local area. It will also help you to discover new talent that you didn't even think about before. So yeah, maybe it's a, it's a one thing, but it's a two-part thing. First, don't buy anything for a little detox and then buy small and sustainable and independent. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sabina. This was fantastic. And there we have it. I love Sabina's passion. A few key takeaways from me. Firstly, really question if you need that something new. And secondly, companies pay your garment workers. That's all the time we have for today in our final episode of the series. I really hope we hear some good news from COP26 in the upcoming weeks. But beyond COP, I hope we see some real actions being delivered across all of the different areas and topics we have talked about throughout these episodes. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed having these conversations. This podcast series is brought to you by On Purpose London in the run-up to COP26 to help us understand how we can all be better changemakers for the new green economy. If you'd like to learn more about On Purpose and the associate programme, please go to onpurpose.org. If you've enjoyed listening today, please like, rate, review, subscribe and share on wherever you find your podcasts.